Chapter Twelve of China and the Chinese by Edmund Ploschut, translated by N. Donvere. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Rushick. Chapter Twelve. Fall of the Mongol Dynasty. The son of a laborer chosen emperor. He founds the Ming Dynasty. Chu becomes Taizu, and rules with great wisdom. He dies and leaves his kingdom to his grandson. Young Lo attacks and takes Nanking. The young emperor burnt to death. Young Lo is proclaimed emperor and makes Peking its capital. First European visits China. Tartar chief usurps supreme power. Dies soon after. Foundation of present dynasty. Accession of Shunche. Chinese compelled to shave their heads. The old style of coiffure in China. Care of the modern pigtail. The fall of the Mongol dynasty and final banishment of the last emperor of that once famous race was brought about by a young Chinese bonza named Chu, the son of a laborer, who joined the rebels when they rose against the foreign ruler. A delicate boy, unfit for outdoor toil, he had been placed by his father in a monastery to be educated. But he early became tired of the inactive life and enlisted in the imperial army as a common soldier. He soon distinguished himself and rapidly rose to a position of high rank when he married a widow with a fortune belonging to a family disaffected toward the government. Soon after the wedding, an insurrection broke out at Nanking, and thanks to the influence of his bride, the young Chu was chosen leader. So great was his popularity that thousands flocked to his standard, and after winning several victories, he led an army against Peking itself. The capital was taken, Shanti and his family driven into exile, and with one accord the people proclaimed their beloved General Chu emperor. This was in 1366, and the Ming dynasty founded by the laborer's son continued to rule over China for 300 years, when it was superseded by that of the family to which the present emperor belongs. On his accession to the throne, Chu took the name of Taizu and chose Nanking for his capital, converting Peking into a principality, which he gave to one of his sons, who, in turn, when he came to the throne on his father's death, once more made it the chief city of the empire. The new monarch, Young Lo by name, who had a very able advisor in his wife, inaugurated his reign by restoring many national institutions for which Kublai Khan had substituted those of the Mongols, and Chinese chroniclers tell us he won all hearts by his consideration and moderation. No longer were the chief offices of state held by military men, Mandarins were restored to their former rank, and many important privileges were granted to the famous Hanlin College. Whereas Kublai Khan and his successors had encouraged Buddhism and neglected the teachings of Confucius, Tai Tzu revived the study of the works of the Chinese sage, forbade women to become priestesses of the Hindu religion, and men to enter convents until they were forty years of age, a truly salutary reform saving many able natives from wasting the best years of their lives in miserable inactivity. A Child Emperor's Death Speaking of Tai Tzu, 
A Chinese historian says, Every man who knows how to turn circumstances to account, to win a fortune and raise himself above his fellows, he must have some merit. But he who from a state of absolute poverty succeeds in working his way to the summit of human greatness, taking his seat on the grandest throne in the world, must indeed be of most extraordinary superiority, worthy to represent heaven itself as a ruler of the human race. This richly endowed being did not, however, escape misfortune. Before the thirty-one years of his reign were over, his favorite son died, and he appointed his grandson, a child of thirteen, to succeed him. The young prince was duly elected to the supreme power, but his uncle, Young Lo, coveted the throne, marched an army to Peking, and though repulsed at first, was finally successful through the treachery of some soldiers who opened the gates of the capital to him. The palace was set fire to, and the child emperor perished in the flames. Young Lo was allowed to seat himself on the vacant throne without much opposition. He removed the capital to Peking, and governed so well that the crimes which had won him power were forgotten. His reign was much disturbed by invasions from the north, the restless Tartars coveting the rich land from which they had been driven out, and at the time it seemed likely that the country would be conquered by them yet again under their great chief Timur, or Tamerlane. Most fortunately for the Celestials, he died on the way to China at the head of his troops, and the land was reprieved for a time at least. It was during the reign of the usurper Young Lo that a European vessel flying a European flag, that of Portugal, entered a Chinese port. A Portuguese ship had sailed up the Canton River in 1516, and in 1520, a Portuguese embassy had penetrated to the very gates of Peking. But its leader, Perez, was sent back a prisoner to Canton, and never heard of again by his fellow countrymen. He is said, however, to have been beheaded. It was not until the middle of the century that the Portuguese really obtained any footing in the country, but at that time they did succeed in establishing themselves at Macau. Expulsion of Li Kong The Ming Dynasty was, in its turn, fated to be overthrown by the restless and ambitious Tartars. The last emperor of Chinese birth, Wei Tsong, ascended the throne in 1627, but the country was so distracted by internecine feuds that he found the task of government beyond his strength. He committed suicide in his despair at hearing that one of the insurgent leaders had entered Peking at the head of a large body of soldiers. That leader, Li Kong by name, had himself proclaimed emperor, but was only acknowledged by certain provinces, whilst a Chinese general, Wu Sangui, made peace with the Manchu Tartars in the name of the nation, calling upon them to aid in deposing the usurper. They agreed all too glad to get an entry into the coveted land they had invaded so often. Li Kong was expelled, but the Tartar chief, instead of appointing a Chinese monarch, kept to the supreme power himself. He was hailed as a deliverer when he entered Peking, and ordered a grand ceremonial to be observed at his own investiture as emperor. The nemesis in store for all traitors was, however, waiting for him. He was taken ill immediately afterwards and died in great agony. 
Strange to say, his son, Shun Che, a child of six years old, was allowed to succeed him, and thus in 1644 was founded the dynasty known as the Manchu Tartar, or Qing, which has endured to the present day. Origin of the Pigtail The various provinces of the vast celestial empire did not, of course, submit peacefully to this usurpation, but Amavan, the uncle of the young monarch, who was appointed regent during his minority, was a man of great ability, who quelled every revolt as it arose. China still bears the traces of the drastic measures employed to restore peace to the distracted land. Many a ruined wall marking the site of a once populous town, whilst other cities, still standing, are evidently but half their original size. The guardian died when his charge was only fourteen. Still, the young prince had already learned how to govern, and with a wisdom beyond his years, he managed to keep the peace between his Tartar and Chinese subjects, dividing honors and appointments equally amongst the members of the two races. It was during the reign of this astute young sovereign that the peculiar style of coiffure, which is always looked upon as distinctively Chinese, was first introduced, and that as a sign of subjection to the Tartars. Before the accession of Shunche, the Celestials had prided themselves on the luxuriance of their dark masses of hair, and the issue of an edict ordering all, without distinction of age or rank, to have their heads shaved, but for one long tress at the back to be plaited into a pigtail, nearly caused a fresh revolution. The penalty of non-compliance was decapitation, and there were many who chose that rather than the disgrace of submitting to the hands of the barber. Still time, the all-healer, has now reconciled the descendants of the innovators to submit to what was originally so detested a custom, and no Chinaman would now feel happy without his pigtail. Writing of the Chinese before the hated edict was promulgated, Father Alvarez Samito says, Men and women alike let their hair, generally black, grow to a great length which is why the name of the kingdom of the people with black hair is sometimes given to China. The natives, adds this observer, have little black eyes and small noses. They think our big prominent noses very ugly. The Chinese look upon them, in fact, as a regular deformity. They grow very small beards and do not care for them to be thick. All they are anxious about is that they should be black, which is the most common color. Still, they do not object to red hair, as the people of Thebes used to do. They wear their hair long and let it grow just as nature makes it, never cutting it. They give more attention to the arrangement of their coiffure than any other nation of the world. They would rather not have a single hair on their chins than lose one from their paws. Now, the care expended on their luxuriant locks by the ancestors of the modern Chinese is generally concentrated on the once-hated pigtail. But in the case of old men with grandchildren, on long mustaches, and what is known as the pointed imperial beard. It is very evident that when the Portuguese father quoted above was in China, the Celestials had never seen the English, whom they call the Red Devils, on account of the auburn hair of so many of them. 
Had they done so, the author would never have said they do not object to red hair. End of chapter 12